0: Alrighty. righty, um, questions, thoughts, complaint, haikus. Sarah Braun has a question. Okay, so you mentioned that he called the people for, to do his trial. Is, that, is calling the people a normal thing that happens at trials? I don't know, and this is not a normal time either. Jerusalem is absolutely teeming with people. It's part of the reason why... We don't have to insist that the crowd that was saying Hosanna is the same crowd that's crying out for his blood here. There, there would be literally millions of Jews in, in Jerusalem. So in one sense, I don't think summoning a crowd is that hard. Because anywhere you look, there's going to be a lot of people. Um, I think, so, so him doing that, I, I don't know whether that would be common or uncommon. Certainly Jesus is a very famous person, and there's been a lot of hustle and bustle throughout the night. I mean, they, they went straight through the night with their mock trials. And now they bring him first thing at daylight to Pilate. So I imagine um, word had got it around. And so him summoning the people. Remember, it was also the people who delivered him over. So, so look in uh, verse 4 of 23. In verse 4 of 23. Um... um the crowds. When Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, so literally crowds have shown up somehow along the way. We don't know when they show up somewhere between the Sanhedrin bringing Jesus over, verse one. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. That must have attracted a crowd. People saw, wow, the Sanhedrin <laughs> and they got Jesus and they're going to Pilate. I mean, I don't. You can fill in the dots of how that might have happened, but somehow between verse one and verse four, there's a crowd. And so this crowd is presenting him to Pilate with a Sanhedrin at their head. And so when Pilate's going to give his verdict, he calls on the crowd. I, I don't know beyond that how, much, how unlikely or how unusual that is, but it is a rather unusual circumstance. So it, it's hard to know what would normally happen on a feast day. <laughs> with a, yeah. It's, but no, it's a good question. Oh, she's got some more. I've got another one. Oh, she's um, got another one. Excellent. So... When he is swayed by the crowds,
1: that's not common, is it? being able to be swayed to make a decision about
0: something. Rulers generally don't do that. Rulers generally don't do that. I think we're meant to see Pilate as weak. Um, and, and, and we're also meant to see the, the Jewish people, and they have a history of being hard to govern. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar shows up. I mean, the Babylon deportation only happened because Israel couldn't, accept the status quo deal that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be happy taking away some of their officials, putting up a puppet king, and having them pay tribute. And they could have they could have existed, and they rebelled, and they sent the messengers down to Egypt trying to get Egypt to help them, and and after the second time, Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, that's it, and he just flattens them and takes them all away. And... As we saw here, there's an insurrectionist already. You hear in Acts with another guy who stood up. I mean, there's constantly Jewish people who are saying, this is ridiculous. There's nothing in the law of Moses about foreign powers. Let's trust in the Lord and go overthrow them, and they get wiped out. And there's the intertestamental period with Judas Maccabees. I mean, and even today, it is a hotbed of political controversy. It's not a very peaceful place. Um, so Pilate is, is seen as a weak man. Most of the people dealing with Israel um, are less patient. John, last week we looked at John, and, and we get some insight into why he caves because they're basically to go rat on him to Caesar and claim him as being disloyal. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. If if you don't condemn him, then you are not Caesar's friend. I mean, and, and when he heard that, he went, oh. Um, Extra-biblically, we also know Pilate didn't have a terribly long governorship, which suggests he may have not had a ton of favor. He was only in in office for 10 years. Um, So as best as we can tell, Pilate knew his position wasn't terribly strong. And so the threat of a delegation of Jews going to Rome and, and complaining actually carried some concern for him. So like I said, John gives us some insight into why would this guy do this in Luke, we just hear, man, they just were persistent and it prevailed. Now, this is unusual. It is unusual for mobs to overturn. I mean, just think of it from his perspective. How much face does he lose? He's pronounced his verdict, and then we're going the other way. I mean, so generally, people in power don't want to look weak and foolish. Pilate's going to look weak and foolish, um, and he's going to get his revenge to some degree by just putting King of the Jews, and then they come up and he don't put King of the Jews over. Say he said, and Pilate said, "What I have written." I have written. I mean, he, there's no love lost between Pilate and the Jews. Pilate does not like them. He knows that they pressured him and he had to cave and he's not happy about it. But Other questions, thoughts, concerns? Mr. Kruger.
2: Uh, you said Pilate was around for about 10 years. Do you know, was he around when Paul uh, was dealing with being arrested, and, or was he gone?
0: Um, Paul's timetable, as best as we can estimate it, I would say no. It's hard to be certain with that. I think Paul doesn't show up. I mean, it's weird. You read through Acts, and Paul just shows up. But when you take Galatians and the number of years, he says he was 13 years, I think, or 11 years in... in, um, Where is he? Hold on. It's like Paul like doesn't even start his work for 13 years. So if Pilate's only in office for 10 years, then there's no way. But we could be wrong. This is all extra-biblical. Like knowing about Pilate's all extra-biblical, and so as best as our archaeology and our records tell us, no is the answer i got to well, give you. Well,
2: it seems like in Acts, it doesn't really mention Pilate. And also, he's taken out of the city right away up to... Caesarea,
0: I think. Yeah. Well, that's Caesarea Philippi is Pilate's seat of control. He's in oh, Jerusalem, just okay. like Herod, because this is such a big feast. You kind of okay. need to watch over the people. No, Pilate's, um, Pilate's palace is in Caesarea Philippi. Again, as best as we can determine. I'm trying to separate what we get from the Bible and what we've sort of figured out on our own with our spades. And, our, and that's useful stuff. But as best as we can figure it out, Pilate based his operations out of Caesarea Philippi. Yeah. what
2: what continues to amaze me though is how God's word, even the smallest details, just and how God uses these physical yeah. events to reveal eternal spiritual truths. Even yeah. Barb oh, I can't think of his name. Barb. Son of son of the Father. Um, uh, Barabbas. Barabbas, yes. You know, oh. here the, the true son that's innocent is taking the guilt.
0: And you can look at that as a microcosm of oh, the human yeah. race. It's, the guilty one who deserves crucifixion goes free. The innocent one goes. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. There's a microcosm picture of the gospel, even there, right? Guys in our
2: place. It's just, just, yeah.
0: And last week, I mentioned this um, Pilate's one of those characters who, up until the 1960s, historians scoffed at. He was purely invented by the Jewish writers until they found an inscription dedicating a, uh, I think a temple or a, a coliseum or something to him, to him, to the people. In 1961, And I read, I had, see, I had, that's why I had that thing printed off last week, because I'm not going to remember this. But in 1961, an Italian team of archaeologists uncovered an inscription, of, and since then, more information has come to light. But for decades and decades, history. Oh, pilot, <laughs> you know, and then, yeah, he exists.
2: Wasn't there somebody in Ephesians that they found a plaque for that was like a, official of the city in the last, I don't know, decade, couple decades, say.
0: Yeah, that that might be it as well. I know we've found more stuff since then even, but in 61, the first piece of evidence that Pilate existed was uncovered, which was a dedication of a, I want to say a temple to Caesar on his behalf, on behalf of Pilate, dedicated here, and, oh, wow, <laughs> but I don't have that scrap of paper that I had last week on me, so... My details are a little foggy. (laughs) If anyone wants to look that up, you're more than welcome to. Um, Greg's next, then Linda. Uh,
2: Mine's just a curiosity regarding uh,
0: verse 17. Yes, sir. Uh, The ESV people (laughs) chose to not include something, Yes. and yet chose to recognize
2: that something was there because they didn't
0: renumber... But that's, you got to understand that. That's because for people studying the Bible, you've got to use the same um, verse numbers. The verse numbers, the chapter numbers came around, I want to say the 6th or maybe the ninth century. The verse numbers were put in, Middle Ages. And so for anybody who wants to say verse 22, it's got to line up. So that much isn't weird to me that they just skip it because they can't, have their verse seventeen be different than every other translation's verse seventeen? I've got the book. I knew I knew it was going to come up. I, well, I actually I invited it to come up. So let me uh, let me read to you. Let me skim this here. I got what this is. This little book and this book is when Bruce Metzger's team of scholars put together um, the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament. They Gave explanation for significant variations and what they took. So they don't list every variant reading, but all of the bigger ones. And you got a paragraph or two paragraphs on why they went this way instead of that way. And so we can look up in math in Luke 23 and find out why. So they give a rating of A, B, C, or D of their confidence to their decision. They're not inerrant, but they know what they're doing. They give their decision to omit verse 17 an A rating. And there's plenty of B's and C's. Here's their reasoning. The secondary character of this verse is disclosed not only by its omission in such early manuscripts as then it has a long list of early, early Greek texts it doesn't exist in, but also by its insertion in slightly different forms after verse 19. In other words, that same phrase, which, and it's just the verse that talks about how there there's a tradition to release somebody. We've got copies of Luke that has it show up after verse 19 instead of here. <clears throat> um, uh, this verse is uh, apparently, be, and then it does show up in Matthew 27. So they're, they're suggesting that somebody very familiar with Matthew said, wait a second, that verse needs to be there. And that multiple scribes plugged it into different places. And so part of what you're doing when you're doing textual criticism is trying to explain what you have in front of you. And so in all of your earliest copies of Luke don't have it. And the copies that do have it have it in two different places. Their hypothesis is later translators, later copyists, familiar with Matthew, would just add it in, thinking it should be there. But they didn't all add it in in the same place because they didn't get together and talk about it. Seems credible enough. So that's that's the rationale behind it, um, and they, they feel very confident in that. The NASB puts it in, but in brackets, which is their way of saying this probably shouldn't be here. But for tradition's sake, we'll include it. But brackets is a significantly we don't think this belongs statement on their ha- on their part. Um, now, of course, the King James, the New King James, has it without that because um, that's anyway that's a whole other thing. We can go there. if you guys, I can talk textual criticism, but I doubt it's going to be of interest to a lot of people. But we certainly can go there. Anything further on that? before, re, Doug.
2: So would this practice of releasing someone
0: be widely
2: known by them, the crowd, the rulers? The...
0: So clearly the crowd is aware of it. Um, because they, they just bring it up and release them. So much so that some of the uh, copyists, the, the suggestion is, felt the need to include it. Turn to Matthew twenty-seven, fifteen, um, which is the parallel account, which does include the explanation. In Matthew twenty-seven, fifteen, this appears to be purely a custom of Herod, not Herod of Pilate. Or perhaps the governorship before him. But no no indication this is a widespread Roman practice in every province. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. They had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, he goes on, who do you want? So it's a practice of the governor. But I'm I'm sure certainly it would have been well known because they get to decide. I mean, any time... People get to decide. If there's a thousand people, there'll be fifteen hundred opinions of who they should release. You know, that's just the way things work. And so yeah, I, I can't can't imagine this wasn't public knowledge and or something the public had opinions on. So and could prepare for. Exactly. Exactly and we learn from Matthew, he's notorious. So Barabbas is well known. Okay. Linda.
3: Okay. I have two things. Two things. Two things. Okay. <laughs> okay, first, I guess I just find it a little ironic about Herod when it says that he was, you know, wanting to see him for a long time because most of the Herods are related, right? Mm. And that rulership was passed from Herod to Herod. Right. So when Jesus was two.
0: <laughs> his own dad wanted to see him his, too. Right. His. <laughs>
3: Yeah, was Very good. earnestly looking for him, and other people <laughs> paid the price for that. Yeah, and now he's, and a, surely they, you know, talk about hey, there's some, you know, I'm going to die, but there's somebody out there that's going to be a king, kind of try to take over. Right. And now here's this Herod. You know, it's like its he's oblivious to the fact of who's standing in front of him. Right. The same one his father was trying to kill years and years ago.
0: I don't know if his father um, was aware of Jesus' name, though. Just that they came to see the king. Right. So, so, you know, he probably didn't make the connections between that. Although, if you'd thought about it, you know, 33 years ago, my dad was pretty obsessed with... Right. <laughs> You're a 33-year-old teacher who... Hmm. Yeah. And
3: then he found no fault in him.
0: Right. No, the, the Herod family as a unit had, had a lot of interest in Jesus. Right. Right.
3: Okay. The that's second, number one. That's okay. number one. Okay. The second thing, is there any significance to the fact that in Isaiah 53, everything is referred to in the masculine form except for verse 7 when it says, as a sheep before her shearers is silent.
0: I'm certain there is, but as that's news to me, I'm going to punt and get back to you next week, unless you have some suggested significance. I did not know that. That's fascinating. I will uh, have to look into that and get back to you. And by I will look into that, I'll go talk to Daniel. <laughs> Whenever I got Hebrew questions, I go talk to Dan. Yo, I can't say Dan, sorry. Daniel. Did, did you guys know, by the way, that I pranked Daniel when he came, came here? Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, I'll tell you the story. This is great. Okay, um, so Daniel likes being called Daniel, but his family inevitably calls him Dan. So if I'm hanging out with him, and he's okay with this. If he doesn't want me calling him Dan in church context. But if we're hanging out of this house, you know, whatever. But I, I first talked to Jacob. And so Dan this, Dan that. His mom, his wife, Dan this, Dan that. But he, no, Daniel. And it's a difference biblically. Daniel just means, Dan just means judge. But Daniel, God is my judge. God is my vindicator. So I knew this. And Renee was still the secretary. And I said to Renee, we got we to gotta get him. So um and i don't know if you know this man but renee can prank i guess it's no you have no idea no no you have no idea no as timid as renee can look that, that 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 woman can can keep a straight face and anyway so we got a name tag for him we got the daniel moore but we also got dan moore for a name tag for the door and, uh, I knew there's no way on earth I was going to be able to see Greg's like, wait a second. Did the church pay for that extra? <laughs> this is what Greg's doing. Um, and so I knew I couldn't sell it cause I wouldn't be able to keep a straight face, but I'm telling you Renee could. So Daniel shows up to his first day at work and Renee, and Renee had a plan she goes down and Oh, pastor Daniel, I got your name tag for you. And I'm just listening at my door. Um, that, that says Dan. Oh, is that going to be a problem? Well, my name's Daniel. Oh, oh, I see. I thought you just would have been... Hmm. Well, if I can go check and see if there's money left in the budget account if you think it's necessary to order. And at a certain point through this, I just started laughing too loudly. They sort of gave the thing up. But anyway, sorry. Um, all that because I, I slip up calling him Dan-yul. Okay. Um, so... There was a question, wasn't there, or something that I was answering. I've forgotten. Uh, but no, his Daniel's Hebrew is way better than mine. I, I, I try to keep up with my Greek and teach Greek here and there, but um, just this week, he was helping me out with some Hebrew stuff, so I'll go ask him about that um, and get back to you next week. Okay, next question. Yes, Lucas.
3: So, in this message, it tells what God is, the selection of
0: Christ, and that's when He was saved from being crucified, is in Matthew 28. It means my brother to go to Galilee, and there they will see me on a cross. That's what Jesus is calling him when He was selected by God. By God means we keep this message from James 5 says, When you give the poor, if
1: they don't have riches for money, it means that what God is saying was thoughtful of the money, that it keeps
3: foundation.
0: That, that, that was a long. Is that a question or a statement? Statement. Okay. Thank you, Lucas. Anybody else? Oh, Mariano Um,
3: This is probably more just a, a curious of your thought. When Pilot has the crowd there and his decision to make this, I'm assuming, more of a public thing, that three times he is saying, I'm finding this person innocent. Does it have to go back a little bit with what he did with the Galileans and now his new buddy-buddy relationship with Herod? Possibly.
0: Um, We also know that his wife had a dream about Jesus and warned him, have nothing to do with this man. So it appears as though God wants... By orchestrating it so that this man who's not defending Jesus for any good in him, it's not secretly Pilate's a disciple and he loves, no, it's no, 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 no. He's quite happy. Like He's innocent will scourge him. I mean, he's got no problem doing that. But God orchestrates it so that this wicked man wants to, let, wants to distance himself, not get involved. And I think the whole point of that is to highlight the Jewish people. <laughs> the Jewish people are the reason this happened. Israel, God, and again, the point isn't that they're bad. The point is the most privileged, the most um, blessed, the people who should have most understood, absolutely eyes wide open with firm determination and urgent zeal put him to death. That's the point. Um, And so I can only imagine God orchestrates it so that these people distance themselves. It just puts a spotlight right on the people. Um,
3: yeah. Do you think, though, too, I mean, like if, if you're thinking like Pilate, obviously it could be different people, but all along the people have kept the religious leaders kind of at bay. I mean, do you, yes. other than a political-type move, maybe he thought maybe the people might prevent the religious leaders from doing something to Jesus.
0: Possibly, but the, I mean, the attempt to please the people, all of these leaders, to some degree, want the praise of the crowd. So in Acts... Ooh, is it eight? Where do they kill James? What does Herod kill James? Is it Acts 8? When he saw that it pleased the people, then persecution breaks out generally. Um, so, what is that, Acts 8? Let me check. Herod has um, Jesus' half-brother James put to death, stabbed, and he, it, the text says, when he saw that it pleased the people. Where is it later than that? Um. Anyone with a smartphone, want to look up Herod in Acts? There it is, twelve. Acts twelve. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of oh, not James, the brother, half brother Jesus, James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this is when persecution starts to break out. So there's a sense in which these guys are playing to the crowd and ultimately capitulating to the crowd. Um, So, yeah, that's that's certainly part of it. Who's next? Steve. Hi. Um, You made a
1: generalization that first it was the Jews... And then the Romans were implicated, and by going back to Scripture, kind of brought everybody in. But there's a subgroup here, I think, that were true believers—disciples, you know, Jesus' mother.
0: Yeah, there's um, a re- when I said there's a remnant. Absolutely, there's a remnant. There's not every single last. When you're dealing with Israel, you're dealing with a concept called corporate solidarity, where God treats the nation. He can take an individual and treat the nation on their behalf and vice versa. So if you go to the the Jericho, where they, no, the AI battle where they fail, and it's uncovered that Achan has stolen some of the silver and buried it in his tent, God, the angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. What do you mean Israel has sinned? This guy and maybe his family has sinned. Yeah, Israel has sinned. (laughs) And so, when you've got their leadership together with this crowd of people, it's enough of a chunk for us to say Israel did that. Even though there were people singing Hosanna, the disciples are there, and there may well, because Jerusalem's got so many people in it, we don't have to conclude that the people who's praised Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are the same people crying out, crucify, crucify. They certainly, there's no record of anyone defending him, or no, he's the king who comes in the name we at least are going to conclude they're keeping their mouths shut now cuz they know it's dangerous to say it. So we don't have to conclude it's the same people totally. So yeah, there's a remnant who believe and Paul argues that in Romans 10 and 11. But enough of Israel total does this so that we can say Israel did this. That that's this is that where you're going or I just go off on a lily pad adventure?
1: There seems to be a subgroup that God then rewards. Oh, sh- and, absolutely! And, and that's the difference between black and white to Him.
0: Oh no, absolutely! There's a subgroup. There's a go to Romans ten eleven. Let me let me show you what I mean. Go to nine, Romans nine. Paul is going to muse on the fate of Israel and he is going to ask the question, what, what on earth happened to Israel? In fact, in the logic of Romans, Romans 9 comes after those great, huge promises of the unbreakable character of God's love. Nothing can separate you, neither height nor depth. Nothing can come between you. And it's almost as though Paul anticipates the objection. That sounds good, Paul, but Similar things were said to Israel, weren't they? And look at them now. Sure looks like something's come between them and God now, doesn't it? And so Paul says in 9.1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory I mean, this, this is the list. When I said Israel is the most privileged, here's a list, a partial list of their privileges. To them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then he brings in his contention. But it is not as though the word of God has failed and i do believe everything that follows in 9 10 11 is to back up that statement whatever we're to make of israel's current state and their languishing dispersion um, it's not that god's promise failed and god broke his word and then paul brings out the big guns of election and predestination skip ahead to uh, skip ahead to verse chapter 10 um, and well, even eleven, just go to eleven we'll do that. And so, in eleven, he picks it up with this question: "I ask then, has God rejected His people?" And he's going to answer along two lines. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, and that's your point, Steve. God is still dealing individually. Paul individually has faith in Jesus. Paul individually is saved. So, on the one hand, we can't say God has totally rejected Israel because there's Paul saying, hey, I'm here. For I, myself, am an Israel, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he's recounting a time when um, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel is seeking um, Isaiah's life. And Isaiah cries out to God, his little pity party, Lord, all of Israel has turned on you. All of Israel has rejected you. And I alone am left. And the Lord says, not so. I've set aside, um, what is it, 3,000? 7,000. I've I saw 7,000 prophets who are being faithful to me. I just didn't tell you about it, so, yeah, don't worry about it. Um, And so uh, his response is, um, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block of retribution. Okay, verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. And even though he's recognized there's this remnant, he's just speaking about Israel without qualification going forward. So my other point, though, is that it's enough of Israel who rejected Jesus that you can say Israel rejected their Messiah. And yet Paul can say, if you press me, oh, sure, sure, of course. Not every single last one. There's a remnant. But you can still accurately say Israel rejected there. Or what John says in John 1.12, he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Well, there were a couple thousand who did, yeah. But nationally, corporately, they did not. Um, that, does that make sense, Steve? So absolutely, Paul can qualify. No, no not every last one. No, no, no. And God deals with each person individually. So your faith or lack of faith in Christ is your standing. But as regards to the covenant promises, the land, things like that, they're corporate in nature. No individual Israelite gets to say, I'm being faithful, so give me the land. Only when the nation is corporately being faithful do they have an entitlement to the land. Does Does that make sense? Which is why one person sealing some silver the whole nation loses a military battle with AI. The people who didn't sin were struck dead in battle because that guy sinned. Now, no one went to hell apart from Achan for Achan's sin. Achan stands and falls in his own sin. But plenty of people died because of Achan's sin and their corporate identification with him. Does that distinction make sense? So, So with regards to salvation, eternal life, heaven, hell, it is individualistic. There is no corporate nature of anything. John 1 makes it clear. Not by bloods, not by the will of man, not by tribes, not by who your parents were. Have you or have you not received Jesus Christ by faith? But our president can sign treaties and bind us. We can owe money because of things. Like, we get that in our country, that the actions of another can, can bind us or loose us, can incur debts and obligation, um, and so, as regards to like, whether you're in the land, whether you're not in the land, that stuff is corporate in nature for Israel. Anyway, does that. I did a lot of talking there. Did I go anywhere near where you were going?
1: Well, I'd come back with no but.
0: Okay, no but.
1: Okay, okay so let's talk about Joshua and corporate actions. Uh, the land was given to the Israelites. As long as they would follow the law. And repeatedly, they broke the law, they sinned, they repented, they broke the law, they repented until at what point did God say enough is enough and take the land away from them? A couple. Uh, how, how did he decide that?
0: Let's go to Jeremiah. Basically, God gave them multiple, multiple warnings. It would have been right of him, completely in keeping with his covenant, to cast them off the land in the period of the judges. And instead, he'd give them over to oppression by the Philistines. They'd cry out for God. He'd raise up a deliverer and deliver them. They'd be faithful for a little bit. They'd worship other gods. He'd give them over. So God is very, very patient with them. and um, So... I think it's 16. Jeremiah, or is it not 16? I got underlined. So I see it. Maybe it's Jeremiah 3. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah, it's Jeremiah 3. And we hear the story of two sisters in verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah Have you seen in the day have you seen what she did that faithless one Israel Now remember we're talking about, we're in the period of the divided kingdom so Israel's is the 10 tribes up north and Judah are the two tribes down south so he's talking about the 10 northern tribes Have you seen but she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill, under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. He saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I sent her away with the decree of divorce. Now, exactly what transpired... Where the wife, where to use the spiritual analogy of adultery, how many adulteries before God says, that's it, you're out? I don't know how that math is calculated. I know he'd be justified in doing it the first time. So it's more how much grace, how much patience, how much, I mean, I think is how we're supposed to look at it, not. Okay, you get 37 adulteries, and on 38, you're done. It's more, he'd be completely justified. And we're supposed to marvel as God pictures himself as a cuckolded husband who endures and warns. And that's part of the logic of how terrible Judah's sin is. What's amazing about this passage, keep reading. Because, Okay. She saw, verse 8, that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. So what he's referring to is Shalmaneser, the uh, fifth, coming in and gobbling up the ten northern tribes, taking them away, never to be seen or heard from again, except for little stragglers. So the, the two southern tribes saw that happen. And... God is saying what they should have done is said, uh-oh, this God we worship is serious business. <laughs> we better make sure that doesn't happen to us. Instead, their conclusion was, ha, we told you we were better than you guys, and even God agrees and took you away. <laughs> sinners. That's, I mean, you can read Amos. That's basically what's going on in the context of Amos. And this is an amazing statement, what comes here. So the 10 northern tribes are brazen in their in their in their harlotry, and yet Judah is worse. Why? Verse 9, because she took her whoredom lightly and polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Judah. It is worse to pretend to be faithful to God while you whore around than to simply say, you know what? I don't want to worship God. I want to go do what I want to do. Yeehaw! And just run off and, you know, do your thing and go to hell. It is worse to pretend to be faithful to God while doing that. I mean, that's that's a remarkable statement. So you got two sisters married. One of them just goes off like a brazen whore and just never comes back. One of them is cheating on her husband, but she pretends to return. Who's more righteous? Well, the one who at least isn't a hypocrite. The one who at least is like, oh, yeah. And so that's why God says he ultimately is going to... So Jeremiah's message to the two southern tribes is don't fight Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) You're done. Now, halfway through the book, after that's hammered out, but you're not finally done. He will not make a full end of you. So the picture is God is this cuckolded husband who sends his wife away. But as we learn in. in um, he- no. What? No, what's the one with the uh, Gomer? Hosea! And it was an H. I'm reaching, I'm like Habakkuk. I'm like, no. Man, in, in Hosea. Um, God is going to go back and redeem her. So he has, he has Hosea marry a wife of harlotry. She probably wasn't a prostitute when he married her. But she becomes one, and she leaves him, and she bears children from other men, and he brings her back, and he ultimately buys her back from her pimp or whoever it is who owns her. And, and God says, that's what I want to do with you, Israel. I've, I've cast you off your sin, but I will not make a full end of you. I will redeem you. And that's ultimately where Paul ends up in Romans 11, that the natural branches were cut off so that unnatural, wild, olive branches could be grafted in. But God is able to graft the original branches back in as well. So your question is, when do they cross that line? In one sense, they cross that line the first time they started worshiping other gods. They cross that line the first time they set aside the covenant, did their own thing. And they, like us, presume upon God's kindness. Because God doesn't crush them the second they do it, they think, oh, He's not paying attention. Oh, all those warnings and threats, I guess they weren't real. So I guess we can do this. And they presume upon grace, and then they regret it. That's, that's my five-minute answer.
1: And it's not other gods they worship. It's stones and trees.
0: Representing the other gods. So like up on every till, what they do is the two major religions that you hear about is the Baal worship and the Ashtaroth, or the Asherah. They would take a tree, cut all the branches off on the top of a hill so that it would look like a phallus, and then they'd have orgies under it. To The thought would be to um, the gods might be aroused, and then the gods would fornicate, and in the outpouring of that, your crops and your animals would have children and kids. So that was one of the major things. So when he goes up under every high hill and tree, he's talking about Ashtaroth worship. It's just... A way of referencing it. Um, Baal was a name for probably a number of Canaanite deities. It just means power or saw or lord or something like that. I mean, Baal could be a name of a lot of things, or it could be specific. And again, it's crops. Um, so in Baal worship or Baal worship, you would uh, what would be common is you'd, you'd give up your first of your first fruits, so that Baal might increase your other crops. So it's economics. You'd kill your kids for more money and produce, which is largely the reason most people have abortions today, um, for economic reasons. So we do it in nice, sanitized rooms. They did it in fields. Who's more barbaric? I'm not convinced it's them. So at least they know what they're doing, right? And there's a, the, that's, that's that Jeremiah 3 thing. At least they're not pretending to be moral, nice people. Like, oh, yeah, we're sacrificing our children, but, hey, I need the crops. We're like... It's not a person. Um, So I I would say, actually, we're more guilty than they are, using the logic of Jeremiah 3. Okay, go. That was probably more than I needed to know. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, I think we got time for one more question. One more question. Who we got? Oh, Kyle Stark is going to bring us home. Do you think there seems to be a threshold at which God...
1: Says enough is enough. It, it seems like as you read through Kings and Chronicles, there's, a, there's several times where he says their sins exceeded the sins of those who I driv, drove out before them, like
2: the Canaanites, yes. the Amorites. Yes. Um, and, and it seems like throughout
0: history also, there, there seems to be maybe a point where sin exceeds what God can tolerate. And he... No, absolutely. And even the New Testament warns against hardening your heart to the point where you cannot repent. Now, where that line is, I don't know. But no, beware. Beware we're warned, right? Let's, I mean, go to, go to Hebrews 12. This is a great place to end. Go to Hebrews 12. This is one of the most terrifying warnings I'm aware of in the Bible. When I became a new believer, I was reading through the Bible, taking notes, taking notes. And I just got about two chapters into the book of Hebrews, and my little notepad, you, I skipped to the next book, because <laughs> Hebrews was tough uh, and frightening, um, Especially for somebody who came out of thinking they're a Christian and realized, yeah, I probably wasn't. And then, you know, so I am that person who's walking around claiming a Christian, trampling Christ underfoot, insulting the Spirit. Yeah, I just skipped Hebrews, moved on. I want something a bit more (laughs) encouraging. But Hebrews 12 gives a dire warning. Yeah, verse 12. Therefore, lift, and you've got to keep in mind that the author of Hebrews is writing to a church that he's confused about. We read in chapter 10 about a former time where they made a good confession, and they joyfully received the seizure of their property, and they went to, to visit those in prison and suffered with them, and it, things, they were bearing what appeared to be good fruit. But as they've been returning to temple worship, as they've been backing away from holding fast to Christ, he's not so sure. And he's confused and he's worried for them. And so the book alternates. The whole book is lifting up Jesus and his superiority. The word better appears overarchingly in Hebrews. His covenant's better, his priesthood's better, his sacrifice is better, his temple is better. He is better, he's higher than the angels, he's better than Moses. But in between this Christological teaching are warnings and encouragements. Like, be careful lest you fall away. But remember, and he goes back and forth, here's one of those warnings. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause much trouble, and by it many be defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You can get to a place. I, whenever, whenever I talk to some people who are worried, have I committed the unpardonable sin? My answer is, if you can get to a place of repentance and contrition, you're good. Those are the sacrifices of God. God never turns that away. If you have committed that sin, you won't be able to repent. So instead of asking, have I committed that sin? Get on your knees. Humble yourself before God. If you can do that, you're good. (laughs) But there may be a place for some people where their hearts have hardened, and God says, you've chosen your lot, so be it. We saw that in uh, Luke 8 when Jesus indicates not only has he come to reveal, but he's come to blind, to use when given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for them, I speak in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. There's a sense in which light and heat melts or hardens. And Jesus says, I'm doing both. Some people I'm setting in their condition and there's no moving. I just don't know when that line is, and so when I'm dealing with people, I'm calling on them to, to turn, get on their knees, humble themselves, but absolutely, I, we just don't know where that line is. There's a line that, yeah, you, you, go, you push hard enough, you rebel enough, you harden your heart enough, it's like that old saying, you don't make that face or it might stick, you know, um, it's, like, it's terrifyingly like that. Uh, I just don't know where that line is, but uh, no, you're absolutely right. God makes the point, and He makes that argument repeatedly. You've done worse than you've done. Like He's making a case, like you've done stuff they didn't even think of. I mean, with the with the sacrificing of children, He goes so far as to, "You've done things I never even entered in my mind." Now, that's got to be a figure of speech because God makes it clear He knows everything. But the point is, like, where did you guys come up with this? This is so abhorrent and terrible. So, yes. That's my way of saying yes. (laughs) And with that, we're over time. God bless, and I will see you all, God willing, next week.